Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray, and to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and it's October the 3rd, 2021. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. I appreciate it very much. Um, <clears throat> we're Today, we're going to be in the book of Job. We're going to look at Job 1.1, just that one verse in chapter 1, and then the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and then in Hebrews, the first chapter, the first four verses, and then skipping forward to chapter 2, verses 5 to 12, and then Mark 10, verses 2 through 16. So I, I love the book of Job. <clears throat> it, it's, as I reflect on it, it's, there's a, a thing to, to, there's been an issue in my life, let's say, that years ago I had a, uh, I, when I was first working as an expert in um, field of business valuations, fraud, all those kinds of things, um, when I was doing that I had a partner who defrauded, chose to defraud the federal government, which at that point in time represented almost 100% of the work that we were doing. It was because the jobs were so large, we really didn't have time to spread ourselves among other things. And so we had all kind of collapsed everything into this one venture. And the managing partner decided that he would defraud the government and used my time sheet to do it. Anyway, I helped the inspector general's office um, go after him and ultimately prosecute him because of what he had done. And the thing was is that I should never have gone to work for the guy to start with. I never trusted him from the beginning. Uh, I knew him from when I worked for the FDIC and then shifted over to him uh, to, to working with his group and as a partner. And so it was a problem the fact that I was even in any kind of business relationship with him to start with. And so I shouldn't and wasn't terribly surprised at what he did. But the problem is, is that for a season of time, that completely wrecked our business. And he he lied to us about what the problem was, the fact that we weren't getting any work from the federal government at that time. And then I'm the one who found out, oh, wait, huh, that's not why this whole thing started anyway. And, and anyway, it was a long story, but during that period of time, I, I, we were going through a very difficult time financially because of this. Um, we had huge amounts of receivables that were outstanding from the government that took about 270 days to finally resolve themselves. So we went through a period of time when, when it looked like we were losing our business as well as um, having a, horrible cash flow problems. And so it was um, it was a time when I, when I, I was coming back to the Lord. And after having, you know, sort of gone my own way for a long time, and, and so it was a difficult, difficult period of time. I, I ended up um, forming a great friendship with another friend of mine who was a, um, who worked for a bank in in Knoxville at the time, and um, we started reading things together. And so he would choose a book, and I would choose a book, and I was talking about Job a lot because I was comparing myself to Job. And at one point, he he was choosing the book, and so he chose the book, um, The Interior Castle by Teresa of Avila, and he inscribed it, and he inscribed it to Jonah. And I said, why are you calling me Jonah? He said, well, that's who you talk about all the time. 
Well, it wasn't. It was Job. And I, and I was right, just confused beyond belief by this. And so, Lord, what's going on? Why, what, what is this? And then I began to think about it and pray about it. And what I realized was I was a whole lot more like Jonah than I was like Job. I had been running from the Lord for a very long time and, and running from his call in my life for a very long time to pursue something else. And, and I, I realized that, that I had mistakenly compared myself to Job all those years. And so I, I, thinking about that this week as we went through a, a lot of things, you know, it's frustrating for Will. He feels like with the seizures activity that he's had, because that continues to set him back, he, he feels like, you know, I'm never going to get a break. I'm never going to be able to move forward. I thought that I had conquered this huge thing, but now this other obstacle comes in my way. And, and so he, like all of us, tend to um, – identify ourselves with Job in a in a different way. And what we have to do is get out of that mindset in so many ways because that mindset is based in something and that it, the, the, that's a wrong theological belief. <clears throat> and the wrong theological belief is, is this world works a certain way and the world operates not in the way we believe it should operate and it operates that way because of sin. And not just Adam's sin, but our sin. And so we are part of the problem, each and every single one of us. Um, I, while I could say, well, that guy did this to me and wrecked my career for a period of time, uh, the reality is I knew better than to have gone into business with him anyway, but he, but he promised me more than the other groups that were trying to hire me promised me. And so I went to work for him for that reason because he promised me the things that I wanted, the the more money, the more freedom, um, and, and a partnership. And so... It, we tend to make mistakes based on those things, but it, but it was my sin because I knew better. Uh, I absolutely knew better than to have gone into business with this guy. And so what we what we have to realize sometimes is that, that our own sin is responsible for this stuff, either directly or indirectly. Um, but we can't count on the world to operate in a certain way. That's a karma belief, and it's the, the default theology of every single person. And that's what goes on in Job is, is that the default theology is karma. You get what you put out, right? So Job maintains his innocence because of that uh, principle. And, and the friends, quote unquote, maintain that same principle because they contend that Job has done something wrong. Well, we all have. So anyway, let's get back, get to the lessons. Uh, Job says there, it begins with there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. I mean, extraordinary man. And so we go forward. What's happened in this meantime is is that Satan is, in the end of chapter 1, Satan's had access to Job's family. And he destroyed Job's family, his his children, all of them, and his wealth. And so now here we pick up in Job 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present themselves before the Lord. Satan being one of the sons of God, one of the angels. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's already done this once. That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Well, that's sort of what happened. God provoked it by saying these same things. Have you considered my servant Job? And then that provoked Satan to do the Satan is a better way to translate that, by the way, this, the Hasatan, um, the, the, the Satan. 
um, that the remember this: the Jews see Satan very differently than we do. They they don't see him as a rival in any shape, form, or fashion to God, seeking to establish His own kingdom. That's not what they see at all. They see him as one who has been given a job to do, and that is to tempt mankind in order that we would sin. So it's to test us and to tempt us to make us stronger as we learn and grow. It's sort of like we're treated as AI at some level. <laughs> that, you know, okay, so we're going to throw this monkey wrench in the works and see how you get around that. And if you fail in that, it's fine because you'll be forgiven for it, but you but be on the alert next time. That's sort of the way they see the working of the Satan. Jesus is the reason we don't see that the same way because Jesus gives way too many reasons for us to believe that he is an enemy of of ours, and, and also he's in opposition to God. So Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So he can do anything to him. He, his, his power is circumscribed by God. He's allowing certain things to happen, and we don't have any idea why. I mean, at this point, we don't have a clue why any of this is happening, why God would, would kind of provoke this attack on Job. But but there's things in Job's life that needed to be fixed. He might have been blameless and upright as far as doing exactly the things that God required, but there's something missing in Job, and it's his theology is askew. He, he, he believes that he's blessed because he's good and that he keeps things right. And ultimately, God's answer to him is, Job, were you there when I created all these things? Because Job wants an explanation for why this stuff is happening. And, and, and God goes back to the beginning to answer him, but the answer is not an answer. He, he doesn't give Job the rationale. What he does is give Job of himself, and he assures Job that he knows, and he has known from the beginning of time what would happen. And what he's trying to say to Job is, is Job, you'd have to understand literally everything that's ever happened in the world. And my purpose is from the beginning of creating things. If you understood all those things, then you might be able to pick up the thread of this. But that thread that's happening to you today is interwoven with creation. And so it's always been that way, Job. I always knew this would happen. And and it's not for a bad purpose that it's happening to you. It feels like in, a, in your present circumstances, but, but your present circumstances are not the be-all, end-all. It, it's all through creation and all through eternity. These things are for my purposes. And, and you can either believe that I'm good based on creation and based on your enjoyment of my creation, or you can tell me that creation's bad. But, but I transcend my own creation, and so do my purposes. And my purposes prevail in spite of sin. And so that's when Job comes back and says, I repent in dust and ashes. I've spoken without knowledge. So here what we see is is God's purpose in doing this is inscrutable to us. But we're told, as the audience, how this came about. And so Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. I mean, can this be any more miserable? This guy's literally lost everything that he held dear. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. And he he survived that. And he says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That was his reaction to losing his family and his wealth. Now, here he sits in the ashes 
with a broken piece of pottery to scrape his sores with. They're so painful and loathsome. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? So it sounds like Job is accepting his fate as as God is good, and he's also suggesting that evil, this evil, has come from God. And he's sort of matter-of-factly dealing with this. But then what ends up happening after this is that, that he spends quiet time contemplating it, and then he begins to rage against God, but not yet. What it says is in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. His thought life must have been problematic. <laughs> let's say that. Let, let's be clear about that. But the problem is, is that that it's okay to voice that frustration as long as we don't dwell in it and as long as we don't live there. Then, then that frustration with God, please, I, I need to understand my situation becomes something that that becomes dear to us. But then when we hold out for an explanation and we refuse to accept that God is good in spite of all that's happening to us and it's all that's happening in the world, what he's doing is offering us to join the fellowship of humanity who suffers. We can get so wrapped up and insulated in our own little bubble of prosperity or whatever that we, we believe that we somehow deserve those things. And that's Job's response, but at the same time, there's something inside him that, that's welling up that's going to spill out over the next about 30-some-odd chapters. So it, it's, it, we, we tend to default to this idea, and what God wants is, is the same thing that, that Jesus experienced, right? I mean, he, he entered into this life as a, a human being in order to redeem humanity, from the consequences of not only our own sins, but, but the sins of others against us. But, but he did so willingly and with full understanding that he was entering a world where, where things weren't as they should be, that they were broken by sin. And he entered that knowing that as an innocent man, he would go on to suffer at the hands of men and ultimately die on a cross because of sin and for sin at the same time. And so we need our eyes opened. We need our eyes open to this world doesn't operate on the principles that God intended it to operate on. And whether we're experiencing injustice at the moment or not is in, in many ways immaterial because our eyes need to be open and our hearts need to be open to that injustice and suffering that exists in the world itself because of sin. And to take responsibility for the fact that, that my own sin brings about some of this. And I was talking to somebody this week about the issue of uh, Abraham and... Um, Hagar having this child Ishmael. So you got two um, Bedouins essentially in, in the middle of nowhere in a desert in the Middle East several thousand years ago, and and she can't get pregnant and, and offers for her husband to sleep with her maid in order that they would bring forth the child that God had promised, and, and then that becomes the source of all trouble in the world today. You know, sort of the butterfly effect, right? So the thing that you do actually has a much bigger effect than you ever realize. But but it, but if you think the Bible's not relevant, then then reflect on that for just a second about how that explains so much that's happening in our world today. <clears throat> that this this decision that two Bedouins made to say, what could it hurt for you to sleep with my maid and father a child by her, now becomes th- these two huge religions, Abrahamic religions that are that are competing and clashing with one another 
all the time. And all we can say is that makes me ever more thankful for Jesus. In this gospel lesson today, what we get is the Pharisees come up and they want to know something. And what they want to know is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, why would they ask that question? Because there's a law that governs that. There's no question that there's a law that governs it. There's no question today there's a law that governs that. They've modified the interpretation and the practice of that law since the time of Jesus, where about a thousand years after Jesus, it got modified within Judaism. But the practice itself is still the same. And so he answered them. He, Jesus, said, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away which is exactly what it says in Deuteronomy 24, that, that you can write this certificate of divorce and you can send away your wife, which means she has to leave your household. And at the time, it was, it was a completely unilateral thing. He could do it without her consent at all and just say, you're gone. And so men would carry these things around. And, and now there were, there were circumstances when it was supposed to be uh, done. There's only one circumstance when it has to be done. And that is when when the wife commits adultery and there are witnesses, because they consider that to be particularly brazen, and that that it expresses that she despises her husband if she's willing to commit adultery in front of the presence of witnesses, and so so at that point they determine that she that, that he is absolutely required to divorce her. That that's the only situation where that's true, though. And so he, Jesus says in answer to them what what Moses allowed because of your hardness of heart. He wrote you this commandment. So it's an accommodation to sin. It doesn't mean that Moses was wrong in any shape, form, or fashion. What it's saying is this is an accommodation to sin. It's because of your hardness of heart. And that would describe almost all of us in some circumstances. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And, and so what he's saying is, is that, that when God created everything in the beginning, prior to the entrance of sin into the world, this was God's intention. And so we know in our own lives what God's intention is today, because it's the same as it was then. What he's saying is, is because of sin, there, there had to be an accommodation made. But it's not God's ideal. And so we don't put away the divorced person from, from our midst. But we, but we, Jesus kind of rewrites the law on that here. Because before, what, what, it, what the law would, would allow is if the woman were put away in this way, then what would happen is that she could remarry. In fact, it was encouraged that she would remarry, largely because that she was socially and financially at risk by being a single woman. There was, there was no inheritance for her or for her children. She had been cut off from that future. So it, it was a, uh, an awful thing to get divorced. And so it, the accommodation for divorce also included an accommodation for remarriage to another, even if there's no adultery involved. But it, but it was because it put her at such risk and such vulnerability that it was better for her in every single way to, to remarry rather than to become sort of a ward of the state because that cuts her off from the future. It cuts her children off 
from the future, and and so she's vulnerable. And we see that same thing in in uh, the book of Ruth with Naomi, uh, because w- what she's lost is the inheritance of her husband Elimelech, who had died, and and now there's no future either, because her daughter-in-law Ruth is childless. And so that that those are things that that we have to be aware of the vulnerabilities of other people in the world who, through either fault of their own or no fault of their own, um, are, are attempting to rebuild life. And, and here Jesus says that that this was never God's intention. So the, it, even all this is an accommodation to the reality of sin in the world for which God had provided from the beginning of time. The the whole template of creation. Um, Jews believe is the Torah itself. It was the blueprint for all of creation. So if the Torah was the blueprint for all of creation, then it included from the beginning the understanding that sin would enter the world. And and Jesus is the final answer to that sin in the world. And so in the house, after Jesus leaves, with the Pharisees, the disciples asked, he says, hey, what's going on here? He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. At the time, it's interesting because the spouse, the, the wife couldn't actually seek divorce. The, the man has to give this certificate of divorce, which is called a get. And you still have to do it this way. But now what they require since about a thousand years ago is, is that they um, jointly agree to this thing. So the, they no longer allow the man to do this unilaterally. It has to be a decision that they have come to together, and she'll receive the get, the certificate of divorce, um, on that basis. And then they have to go before a rabbinical council, actually, with that particular get, which is written specifically for them. It can't be a form document. So they go before the rabbinic council, and the council then has to decide. And it's, it's required for that to happen in order for the divorce to be recognized within Judaism. You can get a civil divorce, and the the law would require you to go then and get a civil divorce. But what it also requires is that if you're going to ask us to recognize this divorce, then no matter what other documents you might have, this one, this, this, uh, the fulfillment of this process has to happen. And so they go before, and there's a financial settlement disclosed and all that kind of stuff, and they go before the rabbinic council, and then the rabbinic council will, will decide, and they pretty much always decide, yes, this is what it's going to be. But they have to examine the witnesses. They have to examine the parties. There's, there has to be two uh, expert witnesses, essentially, that testify to, to the get itself that, yes, this is the thing we saw uh, the, him give to her. So... So when Jesus says this, he's looking sort of proleptically to say, you know, in the future, a woman can divorce like this. And so, so he, he tightens a noose around it and says, yeah, you can do this. You can get divorced only for the purpose of adultery, which is not required, except, as I said, in the one instance when, when the woman sort of wantonly commits adultery in the presence of two witnesses after, so with, with knowledge of forethought. It would be the thing. It's sort of first-degree adultery might be the way to say it. She knew in advance that she had a plan to do this and then had a plan to do it in front of witnesses. Um, and and so that that's the thing. But but so there's no there's no uh, requirement to divorce in terms of adultery except for that because she has treated it with such contempt. And then after that, they they bring children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuke them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for, no, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And, 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 and so what he's saying here is, is, this, is if we're speaking, he's saying the same things that I told you earlier God spoke to Job, which is that, that Job, your understanding quote unquote, is what actually keeps you from understanding. Because you you have been conformed, your mind has been conformed to to the way the world thinks. And what I'm trying to do is transform that to the way God thinks and the way God sees. And that's exactly what happens in this interplay between Jesus and the Pharisees and then Jesus and the disciples as well. And we don't. We, this is not the only time we see that. We see it also when Jesus um, speaks to the, the rich young ruler who comes to him and at the end of that says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so he says that generally, and then the disciples come later and say, wait a minute, how can this happen then? Who, who can enter? And it's so that they're still thinking like the world, and and Jesus is is thinking on a different plane. He is aligning himself with God, not with a sinful humanity in a world that's busted and broken by sin. Nope, he's aligning himself with God. He's pointing us back to first principles, which is exactly what God does with Job. He points him back to first principles. When I created things— but, but what he's also doing is assuring Job, and, he's, and Jesus here assures these people in the same way, that, that those provisions in the Torah, those provisions in the law, were there because God anticipated sin from the beginning. And so what, what he's trying to do is call us to a higher way of thinking. And what, and what he says is the only way you're going to get there is to lay down the understanding you think you have today about first principles and priorities. In order that you can understand things truly, you've got to begin all over again. It's a complete reversal of the way that you think. You have set up these structures in your mind that say this should happen this way, and you're not wrong with those things. But what you've got to see is, is that we're bringing the kingdom of God. And we're the first fruits because we have the Holy Spirit living in us to guide us and direct us in that life, but also to change the way that we think and understand and to make us more sympathetic and empathetic towards suffering in the world. But we have to understand what kind of suffering we're talking about when, when we express that empathy. We need to understand that, that if the suffering you have right now is actually a consequence of your sin, which is the not denial of your own good creation, for instance, or the denial that, that this uh, thing inside me that's a result of my sin of fornication is a child, for instance— there's no provision for that. There's no provision for murdering that innocent child. But, but we've got to get our minds around that and understand that the world thinks in a different way, and we have to persist in standing up for those rights of the unborn and, and for standing up and insisting on a, a different kind of morality. And we've got to stand to thwart the, the, the progressive march of uh, thought in our society today and say no. We, we can't cooperate with that. In, in the Hebrews passage, one of the most beautiful passage, second most beautiful passage in my mind in the entire New Testament are these first four verses of Hebrews. They, it, the first in my mind is John 1, 1 to 18. But here we get a similar kind of thing. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That, that, that is the, the huge glorification of Jesus in those words right there. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And what that saying is, is, is that you are created in the image and likeness of God. Yes, but he's the exact imprint of his nature because it's not marred by sin. And because he lived a sinless life and died on the cross in accordance with God's will for him, that, then he has a name and a glory and a superiority to every other being on earth, in the heavens or under the earth. I don't think in terms of three-tiered universe, by the way, that's not, that, I'm not a fool. I understand what the universe looks like, at least the part we can see. But that's the, the, the issue is, is because he lived a sinless life, he's the exact imprint of God's nature, we should pursue that. If we would know what the image of God is and, and pursue truly expressing the image of God through our lives, then we would point ourselves in the direction of Jesus and say he is the perfect imprint of God's nature, and he, he is superior to every other being. And, and that's important that we do that because that begins the process of the transformation of our minds to say, I want to think like Jesus. I don't want to just do the things Jesus did, you know, this WWJD thing, which is not horrible. But what I'm saying is, is that, that, that all this begins with thinking like Jesus which means you need to know the Word of God, but you also need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and rely on the Spirit to carry you forward in your thought processes about how to work out all situations in your life and how to, how to deal with those things. And then he goes on from there, and we skip forward a, a whole chapter, and says, For it is not to angels God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Because there were people in, in uh, Judaism and other places who had elevated angels to a place that, that didn't make sense. And he's going to speak about that in terms of... Um, a psalm, Psalm 8, that, that David had written, but people had begun to worship angels. And what he's saying is, no, 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 you got to lift your sights higher than that. You can't worship angels. you got to worship the one who is superior to the angels. And so then it goes on. It's been testified somewhere, which is Psalm 8. What's man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? David, you can just see David in the fields with the sheep reflecting on the stars as he looks up. And asking this question, I'm so insignificant in the grand scheme of things, and yet you care for me. You made him, man, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now that's speaking of the of Messiah, but in the future, because right now all things are not in subjection to us, but they were intended to be. And that's what creation story says is that man had dominion over all the earth. So all things would have been subject to mankind had we persisted in righteousness. But we didn't, so we don't. that's not the case. Jesus did. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, like us. He became a man. So it was, what is man? You're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And so for a little while, Jesus was, quote, lower than the angels. And remember, they're the ones who took care of him in the wilderness. They came and provided food in that place. So you made him for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So death 
is part of the glorification process. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And so, the, but it's, it's the persistence of a life lived fully righteous. And then his death has an extraordinary meaning that, 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 that he becomes the first fruits of the dead so that we might trust in him, trust in his righteousness, trust in his righteous sacrifice because of his resurrection from the dead. We know we can trust in his righteousness because God raised him and him alone from the dead. <clears throat> for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, so in other words, all things were created through him and for him, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so when, when we question our suffering in that way, then, then at some level we're not understanding, because of sin, we, we, we must join in the suffering of all mankind. We might not suffer the same way that everybody else does, but, but for us to suffer it is the proof that things aren't the way God intended them to be. And he doesn't want to save us from suffering in this life because the, the point of the incarnation was to take on and embrace that suffering, to recognize it as reality, and, and then to align. Jesus aligned himself with sinners in the same way we're to align ourselves with the suffering of the world. And we're to, we're to be intercessors for those who suffer. And we're to be those who, who do exactly what Jesus did to those who are suffering and that we reach forth a hand in that situation. It says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why we're, he was not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So the, the, the humbling of, his, of himself to come into this earth and, and the fact that this innocent man, this son of God, died on a cross for our sins, tells me everything I need to know about the world, that this world is unjust and unrighteous, and hates righteousness, and hates perfection, and hates God, is at enmity with him. And Jesus came in spite of that. But he saw things as they were, accepted things as they are, and took on the suffering of the world in, in such a way that we're called then to emulate that in taking up our own cross and following him, recognizing that this world is unrighteous, and trying to bring his righteousness through our lives and through our proclamation of the gospel into the world. And that's the mission.